Hi, everybody, and welcome back to Partial Lab. This is Ami Silver, writer at Aleph Beta. And this is Beth Lash, also writer at Aleph Beta. Before we jump into the material, I just want to remind you all to subscribe to Partial Lab so you can get all of our offerings and rate us five stars so that your friends can find us more easily, too. So, Beth, this week we're going to talk about Vizot HaBracha. We're at the final Parsha in the Torah. It's the end of the Torah. This it, is it. It is the end. It's really exciting and a little bittersweet, no? It's a little bittersweet. It's This is the grand climax. Well, funny you should say that because we'd expect a grand climax here, wouldn't we? I mean, it's the end of the five books of Moses. And I'm a bit curious what exactly we do find in this in this Parsha. So, so this isn't the grand climax? Well, in broad strokes, Beth, Tell me, you know, the two, three sentence summary of what's going on in Parshat Vizot HaBracha. Okay, um, I'm, I think I can do it in three. Sentence one, Moshe gives blessings to all of the tribes. Sentence two, God instructs Moshe to ascend Harnibo and look out on the whole of the promised land where he will never enter and he's going to mm. die up there on that mountaintop. And third sentence, uh, the Torah extols for us the virtue of, of Moshe Rabbeinu, of Moshe, tells us that there was never a prophet of his stature before or since. Okay, great. And I, I would say if I can just find the common theme among all three of those, these are the final moments of Moshe's life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. this is Parshish Moshe. Right? God's showing him where his last steps are going to be and where he's not going to enter. Mm -hmm. The Torah is praising Moshe after it tells us of his death. Mm -hmm. And all those brachot, all those blessings you mentioned, why is Moshe giving those brachot now? Because it's, it's his death day, just just like we saw back with uh, with Yaakov and Bracious, right? Right. Like Yaakov gave blessings to his children on his deathbed. Moshe, before he departs from the world, is giving brachot, giving blessings to all of the tribes. And actually, in the very first verse of this parsha. We see this emphasis on on Moshe's departure. I'm I'm looking at Devarim chapter thirty three, Vizot Abracha, and this is the blessing: Asher Berach Moshe Ish Halokim Epnei Israel, that Moshe, the man of God, blessed the children of Israel. Lifnei Moto before his death. This is setting the stage. Everything that's happening here, we're entering into Moshe's last few breaths. Now, what I want to focus on with you, Beth, is actually a bit of a continuation or addendum to some themes that Daniel and I actually discussed way back in Parshat Matot Mase. Matot Mase. Oh, 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 that was a great one. That's the one all about Moshe and his death place and how it relates to Chetzi Shevet Menashe and Ruvain and God. Okay, I'm with you. Okay. I'm with you. Okay, so Beth's with us. Um, let's just give a quick refresher to, to our listeners. I'm going to tell you, again, very general terms what what themes we developed in that podcast. You can go back afterwards and listen to it to fill in the blanks. We were basically focusing there on the story of the tribes of Reuven and God approaching Moshe right before they reached the border of the land of Israel. And they say to Moshe, you know what, Moshe, going to the land of Israel, I'm sure it will be great, but we really love this plot of land. It has good pasture land for our flocks and our herds, and, and we want to settle here. Is that all right? And if you remember, Moshe gets all angry. He accuses them of entering into the whole sin of the spies once again, 
right? The 40 years of wandering have passed. And now these people once again want to say, let's not go in the land. It's better over here. Right. He's, he's worried that they're going to dissuade the rest of the people, that they've got this, this grand task ahead of them, which is to dispossess all the nations. And he doesn't need anyone making them lose their nerve now. Exactly. Because they have a good selling point to the rest of the nation. Hey, guys, look how great it is over here. Let's just stay. That's basically what Moshe hears them saying, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But then we have this sort of breakthrough where they approach Moshe, right? Those words, they approach him and they explain, you don't, you see Moshe, we're, we're not just going to make this pretty little home over here. We're actually going to go to battle in the land of Israel. We're going to go on the vanguard. We're going to fight ahead of everybody and make sure the land of Israel is settled before we come back and make our home here. And and that basically ties it up in a in a neat package that, that Moshe can, can right, go along right. with. I mean, we're, we're not ducking our duty and we're far be it from us to dissuade the people from entering the land. We're going to be the ones leading them to do it. Exactly. So what, what we actually saw there textually was an interesting parallel between the story of Joseph and his brothers and the story of the spies and this current story of these tribes wanting yeah. to settle this land and making peace, so to speak, with their brothers, saying, showing we're not abandoning our brothers by wanting this plot of land. We're going mm-hmm. to unite with our brothers in battle and settle the land that's best for us. So the, the important part for this week's for this week's session is that what we discovered there in that Parsha Matot is that unbeknownst at the time, the land that Reuven and God settle and, and the half-tribe of Menashe, the land that they settle actually becomes the burial plot of Moshe. Moshe ends up being buried in those lands that the two and a half tribes requested to stay outside of the land of Israel and settle. That becomes Israel Moshe's Heights, burial. Right? Israel, Israel Heights, right? Israel Heights. Israel Heights. So Moshe becomes buried in the suburbs of the land he always yearned to enter. Ami, are we going to be talking about Moshe's blessing to the tribe of God in this podcast? Ah, what made you say that, Beth? Well, I don't know. It's just there's some interesting language in that blessing where Moshe he says something strange. He says, um, Kisham Chalkas Mechokik Safun. Mm-hmm. Okay, so let's, you know what, Beth, since, since you're already bringing us there, let's, let's read the whole blessing to the tribe of God. Um, it's chapter 33, verse 20. Ulagad Amar, and to God he said, Moshe said, Baruch Marchiv, God. Blessed is the one who grants expanse to God, who makes space for God. Kilavi Shachain, he is going to dwell like a lion. Vitaraf Zeroa Af Kadkod, and he's going to tear the arm and even the head. So it seems to be describing uh, God's strength when he's going to uh, encounter an enemy, that he's going to be vicious and victorious. Okay, Beth, so before we even go to the next verse, let's mm-hmm. just look at those words for a moment. What enemy do we know that God is going to encounter? Remember what we saw in Parshat Matot. The tribe of God said, we're going to go on the front lines of battle when the nation goes to conquer the land of Israel. Okay, so the, 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 na- um, the tribe of God is going to be there leading the vanguard, as you say, to um, battle with and dispossess the, the seven Canaanite nation- nations that are currently inhabiting the land. So I, I'm bringing this up as a possible interpretation. Again, we're reading mm-hmm. high flute in biblical poetry, and mm-hmm. no one can tell us exactly what it means, but I'm drawing inferences based on the previous connections we found. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And one more thing in this verse, Baruch Marchiv God, blessed is the one who expands God. What kind of expansion of the tribe of God did we see? So that, that part's interesting to me. The, the Marchiv God seems to me to be whoever enabled God to settle in a place that was spacious. 
And is, is that what you were thinking? Well, I was thinking something similar, but it could even be expanding the territory in which this nation could even settle, right? What, what, do, before, what do you mean? Before the deal between the two and a half tribes and Moshe, these nations, all 12 tribes, were going to settle in the land of Israel. But now all of a sudden, God comes with a request and they make a harchava. There's an extension. There's an expansion built. The border of the land gets extended to include uh-huh, this nation. Uh-huh. So now the the, uh, the total land that's being divvied up amongst the tribes is bigger than it used to be. So the idea is that everyone's getting a bigger portion. Well, and I was thinking of a more simply stated, a geographical location that should not originally have been part of their inheritance. Right, right. That makes sense. Ami, as you see it, who's the Marchiv? Who's the one who makes <laughs> so that's a great, for God? Is that, is that Moshe? Is that uh, God? That's a great question. I, I don't quite know. Is it Moshe? Is it God, G-O-D? <laughs> is it who who granted permission, right? Is it God, yeah. Gimel Dalid, the tribe who, those tr- the leaders of the tribe at the time who asked right. for this portion? I'm not right. sure. All I'm noticing here is an expansion, and I'm noticing a ferocious, animalistic quality of power to this nation. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yep, I see that. All right, so what are we going to do with it? Well, let's let's read the next verse and, and see what we find there. Okay, so uh, verse 21, the Yar Rashislo, he, presumably God, the tribe of God, God saw the first for himself. I'm not sure what Rashis is referring to here. It, it, it could be Rashis is that first plot of land, meaning they, they encountered the land east of the Jordan before they encountered the land west of the Jordan. So he saw that and wanted to take it for himself. I know that the rabbis ascribe lots of different meanings to the word racist. Racist means Torah. Racist means um, our first fruit. It, it means a lot of different things. Racist refers to Israel. But I don't. I mean, I don't think that any, any of that's going on mm-hmm. here. Kisham because there in that in that racist in that first thing, the portion of the lawgiver is hidden. So, so ex- explain, Beth, just that word mechokek as lawgiver. Yeah. What's what's the meaning there of lawgiver? I, I, I'm seeing it as coming from the root chok, mm-hmm. um, chok or decree. So the mechokek is the one who laws the law. Mm-hmm. Interestingly, it's also the same word um, chakuk means etched, etched in stone. Laws are etched in stone. They're they're infallible rules that can't be changed. Right. Okay. I that that's really helpful on me because now I'm thinking back to Shmos that there were two etchings of law into stone. The first etching was done by God. That was on the first set of luchos. Mm-hmm. And then after that set was broken, Moshe was asked to do the the, the, the etching. So mm-hmm. ultimately, the luchos that the people are in possession of were etched by Moshe. So Moshe is probably the mechokik. Mm-hmm. Okay, so then at the end of the day, what this, what this, the, the first part of this verse is saying is Moshe, his portion is hidden there in God's portion. Well, once again, it could be referring to Moshe. This might be the meaning of Moshe's poetic blessing here. Um, we don't quite know. Right. Well, I mean, what's the other, who's the other candidate for the role of the Mechokeg? It seems like that's God. God, G-O-D, right? Mm-hmm. If it's not Moshe who is in the racious of God, of God the tribe, then it's God, G-O-D, who is somehow, his portion is in the racious, is in the portion of, of the, the God-God language is getting a little bit confusing. But either way, it sounds like mm-hmm. it's a good thing that God found <laughs> something for himself and either Moshe is hidden there or God, G-O-D, the Almighty, is hidden there. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, so read on, please. Let's get to the end of the verse. 
Okay, Vayese Rosheam, he kigad, G-A-D, came to the heads of the people. Tzidkas Hashem Asa Umishpatav in Yisrael. And what did he do? He did the righteousness of Hashem, and he did his justice with Israel. So it seems like vis-a-vis mm-hmm. God, he acted rightly, and vis-a-vis Israel, he acted rightly. Mm-hmm. And and it, it makes sense to me that uh, vis-a-vis Israel, he acted rightly, because offering to be the vanguard to possess a territory that you're not even going to dwell in to help your brothers in that way, that sounds like a very just thing to do vis-a-vis your brothers. In what sense he did the tzidkas of Hashem, I'm not sure. And to be honest, I'm a little confused because the first time I read that story in, in uh, Parshas Matos Masse about God and Reuven making this request, Moshe, can we please live on the east side of the Jordan? It didn't sound like it was a praiseworthy request. You know, it sounded like, okay, they're asking this thing. They don't want to live in the land. They want to have pasture for themselves. It's going to be better for their livestock. Okay, fine. It's not the most praiseworthy thing, but they're making up for it by offering to be the vanguard. But now it, we're getting, a, I think, a different characterization that somehow what they did is is super righteous. I, I, I mean, is that what you're seeing? You know, Beth, it, it is an interesting question. And again, when we're dealing with poetry like this, we can we can just take our best guess and, and always be open to multiple guesses, I think. Potentially, it's speaking about settling the land, fighting on the vanguard. There was a, a, a dose of righteousness and there could be an affirmation um, here. Moshe is saying, you uh-huh, really did uh-huh. the right thing. Perhaps if Moshe is talking about them setting up a burial plot for him among his nation, mm-hmm. maybe that is the righteousness that he's referring to. Vayete Rashi Am, on the one hand, could be they came and approached the heads of the nation and made their request and, and made their deal and everything. It could be Vayete Rashi Am, the heads of the nation or head of the nation came to them. Right. In any case, it could be that Moshe is referring to them setting up a burial plot for him. It could mean he's referring to them fighting the vanguard. He could be referring to both of those things. Yeah, I hear that. Right. Okay, so it's not, it's not clear exactly what the righteousness of Hashem that they did is. And I agree with you that whatever it is that he's referring to, he's praising it as they did the right thing. Mm-hmm. Yep. They did yep. the right thing by God and they did the right thing by their people. Right. Now, we're not the first people to think that this blessing might have in it a hint to Moshe's burial plot. There's actually a Gemara in Masechet Sota. I believe it's in page 13b or 14a. Uh, it kind of continues on. That, that's all speaking about the end of Moshe's life. And there's mm-hmm. an opinion brought there that Moshe was, in fact, buried in the plot of the tribe of God based on this verse. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Okay, so I mean that's interesting, but it it raises a question for me. I'm, now I'm just wanting to go back and look at the the verses of that final chapter. That you know Moshe um, is told to ascend Harnavo, Mount Mount Nebo, mm-hmm. and he goes up there and he dies. And then we're mm-hmm. told we're told that he was buried in the valley in the land of Moab, and that no one knows where he's buried. Even to this day, no one knows his burial burial place. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. a few things going, I mean, just a few questions. I don't know how many of them we can get into here, but he he dies atop the mountain, but he's not buried in the mountain. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm sorry, he's not buried atop the mountain. He's buried in the valley. So someone must have moved his body after he died, um, but no one knows where he's buried ultimately. So either there was some very, either the people who moved him and buried him were blindfolded, um, or there was some other kind of supernatural intervention. I don't know what's going on there. Um, or the person who buried him died with the information and uh, never never passed it on down. Um, certainly it doesn't say explicitly in the verses that it was in the land of God, but Ami, help me here. Does what the Torah refers to as Eretz Moab map onto the portion of Ruvain and God? 
So, so it does, because if you remember, the portions of Reuben and God were the lands that were conquered from the kings um, Sihon and Og. Right, right, right. And the Torah goes out of its way in back in Bamidbar. You know, Beth, if you don't mind, open up uh, like Safaria or a book to Bamidbar 21 or verse uh, 21. Mm-hmm. So actually, the Torah goes out of its way back in Parshat Chukat, where we hear about the battle with Sichon, to tell us. And now I'm paraphrasing Bamidbar chapter 21, verses 25, 26, that right, Sichon was the king of the Emirates. But the Torah explains to us that Sichon conquered these lands from the first king of Moab. Oh. And took all of his land. So all, right. all the of the land. lands of Sichon was this great conqueror. He took the entire plot of Moab. I got it. So maybe that's part, partially why it was such a big deal when Israel defeated Sichon and Og. So the land has been changing hands. It started out as Moabite land. Then it became Amorite land. And now finally Israel is taking over it and Reuven and God are settling there. And, and I think interestingly, as you're sort of responding to... The Torah here in Devarim, when it's describing where Moshe is going to be buried, it calls it Moab's land. It doesn't call it the land you took from Sichon. It doesn't call it yeah. the Amorite land. And actually, I mean, now that I'm thinking about it, it doesn't seem like such a stretch to um, to suggest that Moshe was buried in Ruvain God land because that's the only land that used to belong to Moab. That's the only Moab land that's now mm. inhabited by Israel. Mm-hmm. I think if you're going to bury Moshe somewhere, you're going, you're going to want to bury him where his people are. So that, that it makes sense to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so there's this kind of interesting little interplay here between what is known about the place that Moshe is buried and what is not known, right? The Torah says no one knows the place of his burial. Yeah. At the same time, the Torah is dropping us a lot of hints as to the general region of his burial. Right, right. You know, Ami, I think it's only now I'm starting to feel the full power of what you suggested in Matos Masse, that had Ruvain and God not made the request that they did to settle in what is land of, uh, you know, Moab land, then Moshe, where would he have been buried? He was never going to be allowed into the promised land. Mm-hmm. He was always going to be buried someplace outside. So the only option he would have had were would have been to be buried all alone in a land that Israel was never going to inhabit. So instead, because they made their request, he gets to dwell with his brothers. So there's really something very redeeming about it. Very much so. My read on this kind of hidden little thread of stories here is that there's a degree of redemption that these two and a half tribes offer Moshe that none of them were really aware of at the Mm -hmm. time, but that we see the full effect of over the course of the following chapters. But that's intriguing because... I don't know, where does the credit for the redemption go if they didn't even know what they were doing when they did it? It's a good question, Beth. I think there is credit due for the brotherhood that they displayed at that moment. Whether mm-hmm. or not, you know, let's disregard for the moment anything about Moshe's burial and let's just focus on what they were doing. They did something that was kind of a remarkable act given the history of this nation. Here were tribes that had their own yep, personal yep. interests and were willing to put their lives on the line for the rest of their brothers and sisters so that the nation could settle its land and fulfill God's promise to them. And they would claim their own their own territories. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I wonder if, in a sense, that very act of loyalty to family and to mission in some way created this burial plot for Moshe. Uh-huh. Right. It doesn't go without saying that Moshe had to be buried there. It was it was a reward for their actions after the fact. And that somehow both rewarded them and granted some degree, again, some degree of redemption for Moshe himself. Yeah. So I'm, that, that's beautiful. I'm with you there. Where do we want to go with it now? Where, what does Vizos Habracha add to this story? 
Well, Beth, I want to look at one more portion of text with you. Um, it's actually also in the book of Devarim, but way earlier, that may make this link between Moshe's burial and the request of the two and a half tribes a little more explicit. I'm talking about a portion in Devarim chapter 3 in Parshat Ve'etchanan. So now just to refresh our memories, Ve'etchanan um, is Moshe's retelling the moment when he begged God, beseeched God, please let me enter into the land, give me a chance, take me to the land that you've promised us, and God says no. Now, we're used to Vedchanan being the beginning of a parsha, so we don't really pay attention to what came right before it. So if you look in Dvarim chapter 3, you actually see Moshe recounting the story of the battle with those kings, with, with Og and with Sichon, and then recounting the story of the two and a half tribes coming to make their request to stay on the east side of the Jordan River, and making their promise that they're going to fight on behalf of their brothers. Again, the word achechem is used here specifically on behalf of their brothers of the rest of the nation to fight and conquer the land before they settle their own. And then immediately after that, immediately after that comes, Moshe says, you know what happened at that very moment? At that very moment when they made their request and they made that deal, that caused me to start begging God, please God, let me into this land. Yeah. Now, it's a yeah. funny thing because back in Bamidbar when it happens, we don't see Moshe making any requests. But here in Devarim, when he's retelling the story, it seems to be an outgrowth of that encounter with Reuven and God. Didn't want to enter the land, but showed their loyalty for the brothers to go conquer the land and then come back and settle in the east. Somehow, that combination of things made Moshe start to pray once again to God to let him in. Right. So you're you're absolutely right. I've never read Ve'eschanan this way before. I always I started the first the first verse of the parsha and I don't usually look backwards. I'm just trying to figure out for myself what is it about the request of Reuven and God that spurs Moshe to make this, you know, to to utter this prayer. Is it that he mm-hmm. is so inspired by their willingness to sacrifice for their brothers that he says, I don't know, I want to be there where most of the brothers are. I, I want to be there in that place where they sacrifice. That that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. I, and then there's this this tension, which is that Reuven and God specifically said, we don't, we're giving up the opportunity to live in Israel. And then Moshe comes along and says, please, God, let me. I, I don't know, Ami, what, what, what do you think is the mechanism here? I'm with you, Beth, in the questions. It's a bit strange. Now, I, I can put out a couple of possibilities. One, like you just said, Yes, maybe seeing some tribes who who gave up the chance to be in the land made Moshe want it all the more so, right? God, here's these peers, your your tribes, you're okay with them not entering the land. Can you just let me in? Right, maybe that's right. what was going on. But but maybe if we also just look at the pshat, the simple story that's being told, the verses that preempt the etchanan that come right before Moshe's begging are basically saying God is going to take care of this battle for you. Just like God took care of of the battle with Sichon and Og, so too God is going to fight for you and conquer this land. So it seems like Moshe is just now talking about how clear it is that God will give them a smooth entry into this land and, and conquer it for them. And once he sees that, he's prophetically talking about God giving them full entry to the land of Israel. He says, how can I stay outside? Come on, God, just let me in too. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, and how how do you think he feels about Reuven and God in that moment? Meaning, on, on the one hand, he's obviously very impressed by their offer, but on the other hand, how can you not spite 
the person who had access to the only dream that you ever cared about at the end of your life and turned it down? You know, it's a great question, Beth. The Torah doesn't tell us. The Torah tells us that he was very mad when they first brought it up, and he wasn't mad after he realized what they were willing to do for it. And, and it tells us that at the end of his life, he had nothing but good to say about them. Interesting, because what we're kind of seeing here is two tribes who threaten to defer a dream, threaten to vanquish a promise of entering the land, who then show that, no, that's not what they're doing at all. They're going to participate in conquering the land, yet somehow they're going to still stay outside of it. And mm -hmm. if we just sort of jump forward to Moshe's death, we have a story of a dream deferred as well. We have a man who lived his life for a certain destiny that he wasn't granted. And so the question that that brings up for me is, like you said, he's praising the tribe of God at the end of his life. Is he somehow making peace with his unfulfilled dream? Is he realizing mm -hmm. what he was given through this whole kind of surprising and curvy and twisty story? Yeah, interesting. In other words, we know we have a data point from the Torah that tells us how Moshe felt about Reuven and God at the end of his life, or at least about God. Do, what do we make of that data point? Does that mean that that is how Moshe always felt about it, that he always felt good about their request? Or does it mean that he had complicated feelings about their request when it was first raised, but that he grappled with it and made sense of it and struggled with it within mm. himself and grew to a place of, you know, being able to come to peace with it. Mm -hmm. Well, what we're seeing from Vethanan is that he wasn't satisfied right away. His first yeah. response was praying and begging and beseeching God to let him in yeah, the land. Yeah, that's right. So what I want to do with you is just look in the Psukim a couple verses after Vethanan, right? Moshe's begging to enter the land. God says, no, you're not going into the land and quit talking to me about it. And now just look at verses 27 28, 29. What does God tell Moshe? Again, Moshe is telling us what happened after the tribes made their request that made Moshe make a request that God said no to. Then God tells mm -hmm. him, Rosh ascend to the top of the mountain. Lift your eyes, look in all directions and see it with your eyes. Because you will not Cross this Jordan River. Then God says, Command Yehoshua, give him strength. He's going to lead the nation into the land. And then the last pasuk of that chapter, 29, And we settled there, we sat there in the guy, in the valley. Do you remember we, we heard about a valley before, Beth? Yeah, yeah, the valley is where Moshe is Moshe buried. Moshe was buried in a valley. Mul Beit, Beit Peor, facing the house of Peor. Again, we're in Moab land, in a valley. That, that, that language also comes up when in the description of Moshe's burial. Right, so 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 bring us bring us to where we're referring to. This is back in Deuteronomy, the last chapter of the Torah, the last day of Moshe's life, chapter thirty-four, verse six. Eretz Moav Mul Beis Peor. Moshe was go. buried. Where was he buried? In a valley in the land of Moab, opposite Beis Peor. Verse um, says it's the same language. It's the same language, and what he's describing in chapter three is basically. God telling Moshe, you're not going to the land, go up to the mountain, see the land, and hang out with the people there. And that yeah. same exact language is used here in chapter 34 to tell us this is actually where he's buried. And that's not all. If we looked a few verses above in, in Devarim 34, in the last chapter of the Torah, it has a lot of this parallel language from Vethanan. Vaya'al Moshe me'arvod Moav. Moshe ascends. 
he's ascending a mountain, El Har Nevo, to Mount Nevo, which we know as the place where Moshe dies, right? Rosh HaPiska. Mm-hmm. You have the same words used in, yeah. in Vedkhanan, to the top of the mountain that's facing... Nevo, Nevo is the same as Pisgah? Well, a Pisgah is a mountaintop. In Vedkhanan, he's told, go to the top of the mountain. In Vizot HaBracha, we're told what the name of that mountain was. Yeah. Mount Nevo. And here again, Vayarehu Hashem et kol ha'aretz. God shows Moshe the entire land. That's exactly okay, what happened in Beth Hanan. Pick up your eyes, look at the land. Look at the land you're not yeah. going to enter. So there, there really does seem to be a link here between God and Ruvain's request, their ultimate habitation in this land that's now land of Moab, and then Moshe's ultimate burial in this place. I, I, I see that link. So we have these puzzle pieces. And again, especially when we get to Vizot HaBracha territory, it's convoluted poetry. It's hard to make sense of things. No one can tell us exactly what's going on. But what do you think? Do, does it seem like we have what to go on that the Torah is trying to show us something here? about one event being related to another event? Yeah, yeah, I mean, I'm with you here. I mean, for, for me, the strongest part of the story is what we saw back in Ba'eschanan, you know, Moshe's Ba'eschanan, and I prayed to God, um, you know, coming right out of that story about God and Ruvain. But it is interesting to me that, you know, that the textual connections you're bringing up, the fact that this is what Moshe wants to speak to God about at the end of his life, this this uh, allusion to the lawgiver being buried there. I, I, there's There's enough here for me to be intrigued, definitely. So if we think we have enough evidence for intrigue, I'm going to just throw in one more hint here that may not even be a hint. But we looked a lot at the bracha of the tribe of God. What is the mm-hmm. bracha of the tribe of Ruvain? The bracha of the tribe of Ruvain is really bizarre. It's in chapter 33 of Deuteronomy, verse 6. May Ruvain live and not die. And may his mitav be numbers. The, what do you make of that? Oh, boy. Okay. Well, the beginning of it sounds good. Uh, may Ruvain live. May he not die. Um, may his men be a number. I mean, that doesn't sound so the good. Truth is, so the truth is this thing of mitav, mispar, there, there's a similar, a similar phrase that Yaakov says to his children after the whole scene with Shechem. So it's a strange word. It's a phrase that that appears a couple times in the Torah, but it's just very intriguing to me that we see the word al-yamot vihi metav, yamot metav. That word mate, the dead, is sitting there in the middle of that word metav. Yeah, that's what I was looking at. I mean, I was wondering, does it mean and his his dead ones will be a small number, meaning may he live, may he live. There'll be right. few corpses among him. I, I don't right. know. So you should know the the commentaries on this verse point in many different directions. Some say that it's saying when Reuven goes out to battle in the land of Israel, again, on the vanguard, let the dead be very few in number. That sounds good. What else you got? Some say may Reuven always be counted among his brethren, among the tribes. Yeah, maybe be part of the of the count of, of the 12 tribes. Yeah, of, uh-huh, okay. But I just want to throw in, you know, because it's biblical poetry, I'm going to take poetic license, okay? Can you give that to me? Granted. Yehi mitav mispar, his dead one. Who died in Ruvain's land? Moshe. Moshe died in Ruvain's land. Har Nevo, the Torah tells us explicitly, was in the, in the land, the territories that Ruvain claimed. And I'm just wondering if we can add another layer of commentary to this poetic verse. Vihi mitav mispar. So, yichi ruven val yamot. Let Ruven live eternally. Let him live and not die. Vihi mitav mispar. Let his dead one be counted. Let his dead one get a number. 
Let Moshe be counted amongst his people, amongst the tribes. Let Moshe never be lost to his people. Mm -hmm. Even in his death that happens outside of the land, even in his burial that happens in some hidden place, he never makes it into the land. But there's two tribes who make sure that he gets absorbed into his nation. Yeah. I mean, it's it's very beautiful. We're definitely in the realm of Drash here, but uh, but I went ahead and gave you gave you permission. I, it, it seems to me that Vizosa Brecha is doing the same thing for us. You know, Moshe, for sure his legacy, his memory doesn't get lost. He, the Torah ends with him. His legacy is lifted up. I think if you would probably ask, you know, the average person on the street, who are the most famous Jews, you know, uh, biblical Jews you can think of, if not Avraham, Moshe's at the top of the list. So for sure we, we end up holding on to him and counting him, even though at the end of the day he didn't get to join us in the promised land. You know, it, it, it seems like it, it was primarily a tragedy for him, but it wasn't a tragedy for his legacy. Exactly. And I'm wondering if in some way these tribes set the stage for preserving his legacy in a way that mm. who knows what it would have been otherwise. Is it is it possible that somehow tribes who were willing to pursue their own interests and, and actually chose to not settle in the land of Israel, right? Moshe was forced on him by God, but people who chose to settle outside the land of Israel, and yet at the same time chose to be united with their brothers, they chose nation over land. Yeah. They set the stage for Moshe's legacy to be one that depends on nation and not on land. Moshe's buried with his nation, but not in their land. You know, I, I can't help but think right now, Rabbi Foreman always asks the question, you know, what makes a nation? And the answer mm-hmm. is children and land. Children and mm-hmm. land make a nation. So, okay, so to be a member of the nation of Israel, you've you got to have a lot of people. People make a nation, but you also have to be in the land of Israel. So then the question becomes, what if you identify as being a part of the nation, but you're not in the land? God and Reuven were the first ones to, um, to, to pioneer that, to clear a path for that kind of possibility. They weren't thrown out of the nation just because they couldn't actually dwell in Israel. Mm -hmm. And Moshe's right there in the same camp. And, you know, Ami, there's 6 million Jews today in the same camp too. Mm -hmm. You know, on the one hand, God is giving us this amazing special place flowing with with milk and honey where we're going to get to go and um, have sovereignty and be a nation. But what does it mean for you if you're not physically there? Mm -hmm. And so in a sense, you know, I think there's a lot to contemplate about this story, the end of Moshe's life. I think there's a lot to meditate on here. But one thing that it speaks to in my mind is there are dreams that are fulfilled quickly, smoothly. There are dreams that take a very, very long time. Mm. And there are dreams that are never fulfilled. And the Torah seems to be giving us some kind of realm of possibility where a dream can be touched, if not completed in that moment. It may be that it's going to take a long time. It may be that we have no idea what the next steps will be. But Moshe is ultimately subsumed at the boundary, at the border between outside and inside, between Mm -hmm. those who live in the land and those who live just outside the land, and at the same time are innately and deeply connected to those living in the land. Yeah. I don't know. I got got to tell you, I'm distracted here because... You know, here we are. I don't know if our listeners know this. I'm I'm sitting in Nashville, Nashville, Tennessee. You're sitting in Rehavia, right? We're having this conversation about Torah, and we're part of the same nation, and we're all these all these miles apart. And like, you know, what are what are your deepest aspirations about where to be, and what are mine? And yet, hmm. you know, we get to both claim identity to this nation and get together and learn Torah. And it's I don't know more questions than answers, right? 
So Beth, you're basically saying that we are the Torah we're speaking here is created by a bridge between Nashville and Jerusalem. Yeah, a bridge between outside the land and inside the land, and and we're creating a Torah together. Yeah, I mean I'm God, Ruvain, Moshe right now. <laughs> okay, well I really enjoyed this. Thank you, Beth. Thank you, listeners. I hope this got some thoughts stirring in you. And if you have any further thoughts, questions, comments, we love to hear from you. Info at alephbeta.org. And thanks again. Enjoy the last Parsha. It's a sweet one. Shabbat Shalom, listeners. Mm-hmm.